1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Follow along as I read this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. That last line right there, about the other things, I will give directions when I come, that's sort of like dad gets news from mom about your behavior and says, just wait till I get home. Just wait till daddy comes home. I've got some more things that I need to talk to you about. But Paul is saying here, what I've just said, like the, the, this matter of the Lord's Supper, taking it seriously, the things that I just said about it are worth using some expensive parchment for, and there's many other things that we need to talk about. See, the church in Corinth was a church with, with problems. They had issues specifically here. He's addressing the issues that they had around the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't know if you've ever had friends over to grill at your house. Uh, something we like to do, something I know some of you guys do, but we all love to just be at those parties, don't we? Where somebody's on the, on the barbecue flipping burgers, wine is flowing, good time laughing around the table, friends. We love that, right? There is something about that that points us to something bigger, all right? There's something that's inside of us that we long for and that we are going to find. Meals. 
in the ancient world were a little different than meals today, the significance of them. So the average meal today consists of uh, uh, sitting in your easy chair known as the driver's seat or the passenger seat, going through the drive-thru at McDonald's, ordering your Big Mac, medium fry, and and a Diet Coke because you want to watch your calories, right? And then eating on the go. Uh, Or a healthier option might be pita bread, hummus, and green peppers watching a movie, you know? But in our busy culture, our, our meals usually often consist of basically just eating food. Uh, sometimes sitting around the table, often not. In the Bible, meals were different. Meals signified something more than just filling our bellies. This is what I want to do, to, to give sort of the context for the Lord's Supper, what we're talking about today for communion. I want to kind of like a movie, skip through four different scenes in the Bible, just very briefly, where we see four different meals that are eaten that, that signify something of, as to where we've been and something to where we are going. First, meals in the Bible meant union. So if you are going to be eating with an enemy, that means you have a new friend. We, we, we're coming together as one. We're coming together united in friendship. If you have a marriage, you often, even today, we do what after the marriage? We eat. Signifies union. There's something new that's happening here. There's a meal that, that, that brings us together. A covenant is made, and then a meal is put in place to honor it. So here's the four scenes that I want to go to. Follow along just in your mind. Let's do this. Everybody close your eyes for a second and then open them, all right? Scene one, that's what we're going to do. Scene one, we've gone back to Genesis chapter three. We're in the garden. Adam and Eve share a meal with the devil. They are told not to eat of this certain tree. Satan comes and he tempts them to eat. In Genesis chapter three, verse six, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. All right, basic problems with humans. Basic problem with humans. We had a meal. We we, we dined with the devil, all right? We became one. We, we found unity outside of the meal that God had prepared for us, and we found unity in His meal. Close your eyes. Let's do it again. That's fun, isn't it? Open them. Scene two. We've skipped forward. We're in Exodus chapter 12 now. The Israelites are now in uh, Egypt. God's people locked down in Egypt. God's judgment is about to come over Egypt. And what does He do? He says, for every Israelite family who sheds the blood of an innocent lamb and smears the blood on their their doorposts, he will pass over them in judgment. And then God gives them a meal to signify this union. So eat this meal, and he gives them instructions for the meal. And the meal signifies their union now with God and with one another underneath of the covenant. Do it again. Close your eyes. Blank. Open them. Scene three. We've skipped forward now to Jesus. 
participating in the Passover meal, which had been commanded by God to be participated in every year since that original Passover. Jesus taking part in the Passover meal. Now, in the Passover meal, there were a number of cups. And each cup you would drink throughout the whole evening. And they, they had a different, uh, each cup had their own symbolism. They signified something. After the meal, boom, 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 third cup, all right? After the meal. It's called the cup of redemption. One modern source says this about that third cup. It says this, the third cup of wine is taken after the meal. It is the cup of redemption, which reminds us of the shed blood of the innocent lamb which, brought our re- which bought our redemption from Egypt. Look at verse 25 here in 1 Corinthians. Paul references now this, this scene where Jesus is taking the Passover. Verse 25, he says, after the supper. So here he's picking up now the third cup, the cup of redemption that comes after the meal. He's now holding up the cup of redemption which signifies what the the blood of the innocent lamb that was slaughtered. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And he passes that on. With that, he institutes what we're doing today. Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years since that day, almost on a weekly basis, if not once every month or two. Now, before we get into the Lord's Supper, which that's our, that's our focus today, I want to go to one more scene, one more meal, which gives us context, full, big picture of what we're doing. Last meal. Close your eyes. Open them. Fourth scene. We're years into the future. Christ has, the, the skies have opened. Christ has come down. His feet now have touched the ground. He is physically, bodily with us. Again, the kingdom of God has been ushered down. It's here, it's opened, tears no more, death no more, suffering is no more. The things that we struggle with today are just like history, they're gone, the pain is gone. Now a table is spread before us. And on that table, this feast, there is rich meat and there is aged wine and we are hanging out and we're laughing and we're, we're enjoying all that there is to enjoy because now Christ is at the center of this big barbecue, all right? That's the picture of where we're heading. Now, let me show you that in, in the Bible. Look at Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, so this is referring to this coming day that is, that is, that is here but not yet, okay? It will be fulfilled, it will be opened up, and we will completely have Christ with us. On this mountain, it says, the Lord of hosts will make for all His people... So here's Jesus, the Lord of hosts, all right? He's the one on the grill. Are we tracking? We got the picture here? He's the one preparing the meal. He will make or prepare a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. The commentators say that Isaiah just repeats himself here to show the abundance of what is on this spread. Rich food full of marrow. That's meat. Like good meat and aged wine. Like the kind that's too expensive for us to buy. Alright? Good feasting. 
So that's where we've been, all right? Dining with the devil. And now that's where we're going. Like a really great barbecue for all of eternity. Joy, laughing, meat, wine, Jesus at the center. So what are we doing now? All right? What is, what is this that we do? What is this, like, juice and the, these crackers? And it, how does that help us to understand this? That's how we're kind of spending the rest of our time today. What are we doing in the meantime as we come around this meal every week? Let's get into the text. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, so Paul has been writing a letter with all kinds of instructions. Now these following instructions have to do with the Lord's Supper. He says in the following instructions on the Supper, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. So Paul here is saying, uh, like, you would be better off to not come together at all. You'd be better off to just shut the service down. Why? As we go through this today, what I want us to see is this. I want us to see that the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, all good names. The Lord's Supper is a, is a unifying, uh, division-leveling means of grace in which we examine ourselves as a body and as individuals and then proclaim the death of the Lord. It is serious, it is big, and it is beautiful, and Paul is saying you're not handling it well and it would be better off if you didn't do it at all. So what's their problem? Look at verse 18. For in the first place, he said, when you, when you, come, to, when, when you come together, I hear there are the divisions. So there's divisions. What are these divisions? In the ancient church, much like the modern-day potluck, the way that they would do the Lord's Supper, communion, is everybody would bring a, 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 a portion. And so some would bring bread, others wine. Now, the rich would bring a large portion, a lot of bread and a lot of wine, and the poor would bring very little, sometimes nothing at all, but everybody would be eating equally. Do you see the picture of unity that that is in and of itself? We see that regularly in our own potlucks here. What's happening here, I'll just read it, look at it. Verse, look at verse 20, uh, verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? He's saying, look, there are people who are, uh, who, who are eating, who are coming, and, and the rich are eating their lion's share that they brought, and they're getting drunk off of all of the wine that they brought, all the while the poor are going without. And he's saying, like, you're, you're making a mockery of this. If you just want to eat, if you just want to get drunk, look, don't you have a house? You, can't you just do that at home? And so he says that this is not the Lord's Supper, that you are doing. They thought it was, like they were patting themselves on the back. Look how often we come together and celebrate communion. We're doing such a good job. He's like, look, you guys aren't even doing that. 
You are completely missing what the Lord's Supper is all about. There are walls of division as you come to this table. Uh, you are upset that, that nobody uh, reached out to you and showed you love. You're, you're focusing on your own needs as opposed to the needs of others. Proud people who are looking down on others who are as, not as religious as they are. Or people looking down on others because they are more religious than they are. Overly religious. Uh, people who don't struggle with certain sins. Looking down on those who do. Arguments about who should lead this, who should lead the music, or who should play the organ. Division among, uh, uh, around music styles and clothing styles, what to wear, worship styles, uh, preaching styles. One culture believing that it's more superior to the other culture. White people just hanging out with white people. Black people just hanging out with black people. Students just hanging out with students. Married people hanging out with married people. Like divisions. And, we're, and, and, and then, on top of that, we all think our own culture, rich or poor, whoever we are, we think our culture is the superior culture. And so Paul is addressing here a church with massive divisions. Among, like, they are not brothers and sisters. There is no unity. They, they, they're looking down on one another. And then they're coming to the, to the table and pretending. They're pretending to, to partake in the Lord's Supper and they're patting themselves on the back and saying, hey, Paul, commend us. Look how well we're doing. He's like, look, you guys aren't even doing the Lord's Supper because there are divisions among you. Now, verse 19, he says that this isn't bad. It's like there are, there are factions among you, and this, this isn't a bad thing, be, and here's why. The wolves are about to be seen as wolves. The fakes are about to be seen as fakes. Divisions, he says, factions, not bad. And what he's saying here is this. If you have problems in a church, if we have disagreements and we're angry and we hate each other and we're arguing about stupid, trivial things that people in churches argue about, he says, don't go out and get a church consultant or mediator to come in and form a committee and sit down and try to hear everybody's side and, 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 and get it all figured out and then come to terms. He's like, look, if you have divisions among, if there are factions what he's saying is start taking communion seriously. Let's start taking this meal seriously. Let's start taking the Lord's Supper seriously. And when we do, we're going to start seeing how this is unifying and how walls of divisions are smashed. And so how? How do we do this? How do we... How do we how does the Lord's Supper become, a, become such a, a, a means of such grace for us as a church? This is what Paul does. Follow his thinking here. He, he then goes back to the beginning. And he says, let's be reminded. Let's be reminded, reminded about what it is that we're actually doing when we come around this table. Read along with me, verse, starting with verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, 
which is for you. Some manuscripts read, broken for you. Do this in in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He takes it back to the beginning and he says, Jesus took the bread. This is my body. And he broke it. It's broken for you. Like the righteousness of Christ, the body of Christ was broken for you. And what, when you're coming together, you church in Corinthians, you're getting full off of the bread. Do you, do you not realize what it is? You see what he's doing here is he's pointing a church with a lot of problems and divisions. He's pointing them to the Savior who was perfect and gave his very own body and blood for the people that hated him. Do you not realize, Corinthian church, what you are taking part in? The blood. He took the cup. This is, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood which is poured out for you. The blood. Here, what he's doing is he's leveling the ground. And he's saying, look, as we remember the death of the Lord, we come on a level ground. Look how he ends verse 26. Um, he, 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 causes, he wants us to look back and look forward. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, every time you come to this table, guys, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. He wants us to first look, look backward. He wants us to see the death of Christ, to see the body and the blood, the body broken, righteousness for us, the blood which covers our sins, he wants us to see the, the, the reality that, that we are sinners as much as the next guy, alright? Even the person who sins more than you, you, you are equally a sinner. He wants us to see the grace of Christ, that we are all here by grace. None of us earned this. The favor that God has just given us for no reason other than His love for us. And then he also wants us to look forward. For how long do we do this? He says, until he comes. So he wants us then to be looking forward to that meal that is coming one day. That big grand feast where, 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 where the big tables put out and we all from all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every race, every ethnicity, every economic level sit at the same table in harmony and in oneness and in unity and Jesus is on the grill and we are bragging on him. That's what we're looking forward to. And so then this becomes something of a memorial, a, 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 a time of repentance and confession and also something with great joy in this expected hope that is to come. So, how then does the Corinthian church move from being a church with factions and divisions and problems a church where, where there is hatred and there is 
there are people looking down on others, a church that is completely missing the Lord's Supper, how do they become a church that reflects the glory of God to the world around them? Paul doesn't just simply leave them with, with harsh words. But we see here in verse 27, he turns this conversation and he gives them uh, really just simply practical encouragement. This is what now you should do. Look at verse 27 with me. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That word therefore, it's the connecting word. So here's the problem. Here's the the, the beautiful picture of how it all began. So then therefore. So here's what we do. His answer is this. It's simple. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. He wants the church in Corinth to examine whether or not there are divisions among them. Whether or not there are people that you are angry with in a sinful way. People that you are looking down on because they belong to another culture. They were brought up differently than you were. People who you are unwilling to love. Areas of sin in your life that you are unwilling to let go of and turn over to Christ. Are you legit? Examine yourself. Or are you a wolf? Examine yourself. And then this comes in verse 30 with a very big warning. He says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. He's like, this is why some dropped dead at the communion table. Now, is it possible that God would still discipline, discipline us in this same way? So here in the Corinthian church, let's just go with this. Let's go with what he's presenting, what God is saying here through Paul. The Corinthian church has been making a mockery of the elements of the body and the blood. They're coming with hatred and bitterness and anger and unrepentant sin in their heart. And he says, this is why some of you are sick and some of you are dead. He's basically saying, look, if you don't come as a pure church together around this table, then God will purify the church for you. Now, this isn't eternal judgment. This is actually God's love and His grace. He, he, says, he says it right here. He says it's discipline. We're not talking about condemnation of the wicked. But this is discipline. So God's discipline over the Corinthian church meant removing some people not from membership per se, but from this world and just simply taking them home to glory. Sometimes the most wonderful thing that God could do for one of His children is to just simply remove him from one realm to another. Is it possible that God would discipline a church in the same way today? Now, some theologians would say no. First century here, the discipline of the Lord was stronger because of the necessity for purity in the early church. 
Same case with Ananias and Sapphira. That may be true. I don't know. All I know is there's a strong warning that comes with this. Don't take this lightly. Is it possible that you could drop dead right at the communion table? Don't take this lightly. Are there divisions in your heart? Is there unrepentant sin in your life? Do you see what he's telling the Corinthian church here? Do you see now the weight of this word? Examine yourself. Ask yourself, am I a sheep or am I a wolf? When the curtain drops and the factions are seen, which side am I standing on? He leaves the church with this warning. Now, how do we apply all of this to our church today? What does this mean for us? We do, we do communion every week here as a church. How do we apply this to us? What I want to do to put some teeth to this and some, some, some more application to help us understand what this means for us as a body, I want to give you six common questions that I am just personally often asked about communion, the Lord's Supper, and I want to try to answer them uh, through the lens of this study that we have before us. Cool? So the first question is this, a common question. Should those who have not been baptized take communion? Now, Exodus chapter 12, he refers here to the Passover. Jesus taking the Passover, going back to the beginning of that in Exodus chapter 12. When Passover instructions are given, it says, for the foreigner who's with you, those who, the one who's, who's coming in, they, they, they weren't born into the family, they're coming in. The foreigner who is with you must first be circumcised before they can partake in the meal. So the sign of the covenant then is always placed on an individual before they begin to partake in the meal of the covenant. We think of this with marriage as well. The marriage covenant is made and then the meal happens. The meal is the celebration of the sign. And so churches throughout history, most denominations today would, ag would agree that the sign of baptism then ought to come before the participation in the meal. Question number two, should a child take communion? Now to answer that again, uh, we can refer to baptism. Uh, the sign of the covenant ought to be first placed on the individual and then the child, or then the individual rather, uh, will take communion. But in addition, when we, when we speak of children, and I think of my own children, when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and this strong warning to examine yourself, I believe it is prudent for us as parents to make sure that as we are growing up our children that they are of age to be able to rightly examine their hearts, to examine themselves, to understand repentance, to understand the gravity of their sin, the, the wonder of the gospel, 
so that, and this is why it's love, so that they don't make communion meaningless for them. So they're not just coming to the table to eat or out of curiosity, but they ought to come knowing what it is. Parents, let's just Let's, let's work together to teach our children the great significance of communion and let's encourage them to wait until we believe that they are of age to be able to do what Paul is talking about here and to examine their motives, their hearts, and their intentions. Number three, should someone who's excommunicated or church discipline take communion? This means somebody who's been removed from the church because there's been terrible, like, unrepentant, clear sin in their life and the the church has removed them from membership, should they take communion? The answer is simply this. They need to first be reunited with the church. Because see, what we, what we see here, what Paul is saying is, is communion now is going to separate the wolves and the sheep. There's, there's this good dividing thing that's about to happen to where those who are fakes will be seen to be fakes. And so a person who then has been removed from membership because they are living a life that seems fake, needs to first come back to the church and say, I'm repentant. And we see it. We, yes, you're not a fake. You're a sheep. And thank God for bringing this out in you. That is the goal of church discipline. And you're reunited and come to the table with us. But the reunion first must take place or unity is not there. Another question often asked ask is this. Then, with that said, should someone who's not a member of a local church take communion? Communion should be closed in the sense that it is for repentant, baptized Christians, all right? However, those who are visiting a church or who are, are, are attending a church for a long period of time, who are repentant, baptized Christians, ought to be welcomed to the table because we are one body. However, I would at the same time, and I've encouraged people to think, think in this way, if you do, though, refuse belonging in a certain way to a certain body, you, we should, as part of our examining, we should ask ourselves, why do we? Is it because there are grave gospel implications? There, there's massive areas of disagreement which change the essence of the gospel. And in examining ourselves then, we have to ask, are we then in union with what this church teaches? So yes, baptism is for those who are repentant baptized Christians visiting or regularly attending a church in harmony with what the church teaches. Number five, two more questions. Should we fence the table? Now, many of us, fencing the table sounds weird. You're gonna, what, you're going to pull out a fence? Would be awesome. All right, let's just set up a little chain link. All right. So what, what some churches do is they actually have elders stand in front of the elements. And, they call, and it's called physically fencing the table. There's a story of one pastor jumping down from like his 15-foot pulpit and grabbing the elements and pulling them away before the heretics got to it. All right. So there's this physical fencing that, that, that uh, has taken place in the church and does in some churches today. Should we physically fence the table, meaning should our elders come down and stand in front? You basically, basically got to get through us to get to the elements, all right? You're not touching Jesus unless you get through us. All right. The answer is no. We shouldn't physically fence it. And here's why. 
because I don't know whether or not you're repentant. I may know of sin in your life, but I don't know whether or not you are now repentant, that you have been moved in the last hour by the grace of God and you've seen the goodness of the cross and you've repented and you've changed your mind and you're heading in a new direction. I don't know that. I mean, according to me, you've just been sitting there the whole time looking at me. All right? So I don't know. The other thing is this. I may think you're repentant, but you're not. Some of you may fake it really well. So we shouldn't physically then fence the table, but we should verbally fence the table, which we do. We should say, this is who communion is for, and this is who communion is not for. If you are in unrepentant sin, meaning not just that you feel bad about your sin, like we all feel bad about sin. Unrepentant sin means, repentance means a change of mind, like we're changing directions, all right? It's like, I'm done not planning to go back to that, all right? So unrepentant means that we haven't changed our mind. We haven't changed our direction. Like we're still planning on participating and delighting in that sin, all right? If you are unrepentant, then we should verbally, you see what we're doing? We should verbally fence the table. Last question is this. If you sinned this last week, should you take communion? Now, I sort of phrase that question to sort of intentionally show the absurdity of that type of thinking, but that type of thinking exists, all right? Here's what we often think, especially those of us that grow up in in very conservative uh, churches, which often do try to teach us the importance of it, but miss it and turn it into moralism. This is what I mean. Often we think of it in this sense. I need... I need to have like a track record before God, before I take communion. Like I need to have at least a few days in between me and my sinning. I need to have at least maybe a week or two or three weeks in between me and my sinning before I can come to the table and take communion. Here's the problem with that thinking. First of all, it's called moralism. It, it places the weight on our shoulders. And we think, here, let me just state it. I have to fix myself and show God proof that I've been fixed for a few days before I come to Jesus. You see, it changes the fundamental message that communion symbolizes. Communion says, we are nothing without Christ. We have no strength without Christ. And so then what Paul says is, for those of you who sinned yesterday, don't not take communion. That's not his, he, what he says is examine yourself. Look at it. He says examine yourself. So we, we examine ourselves. We see sin, whether it was something, something explicit last night or a motivation to do good three days ago. We see sin. We see our pride. We see our our. our Whatever it is, we are then convicted of that sin. And thanks be to God, the Spirit moves in our hearts and we are convicted. We then repent of that sin, and we, meaning we change our mind. We change directions and we say we are going another direction. And then guess where that direction leads us? To the table. 
we walk to the table and symbolically ingest Jesus. We walk to the table and symbolically take His body, which was my righteousness, which is my righteousness, His life, His blood, which is my forgiveness. And we symbolize what's happened at conversion as well as every day in our Christian lives. We ingest, we take Jesus in. We take Him in to be saved. We take Him in to be sanctified. We take Him in as we repent and we change directions and we move a different way. Because it is only Christ. It is only Christ that can give us the strength to change. And so we come to the table in a spirit of confession, in a spirit of repentance, with joy, knowing that Christ, this is a symbol of what Christ is doing in us, Christ is enough. And we eat Him. And we drink Him. Jesus is our nourishment. Friends, what is your nourishment? That's the question. Is Jesus your nourishment? Is Jesus what you're living off of? Are you feeding off of Christ? then come to the table. But are you feeding off of something else? Is something else your nourishment? And Jesus just doesn't taste right to you and He's not enough for you? Examine yourselves. Watch how Paul finishes this section to the Corinthians. Look at verse 30, 33. Look at this. He says, So then, my brothers... My brothers, after these very harsh words that he has just given to the Corinthian church, he then here calls them brothers. You are my brothers. We are family. Communion is a unifying, division-smashing means of grace that unites us as brothers and as sisters and shows us for who we are in our identity with Christ. So then, he says, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. When you come together, just simply look at each other in the eyes. Wait for, share with one another. Another. Paul is saying that communion is a unifying, division-smashing means of grace in which we examine ourselves and then together in unity and in respect for one another and in brotherly and sisterly love, we come together to the table to proclaim our mutual identity and that is found in the death of Christ. I wonder if there are walls of division that you have built around you even in this congregation, areas of pride where you look down on others, areas of superiority. Is your culture superior to another? Do you hate some of the people that you see coming before you to to take communion? Do you refuse to reach out and to show love to those who you thought should reach out and show love to you. 
Is your heart against God? Are you in rebellion against God? Do you know God's law and you are intentionally saying no? Not good enough for me. I will not trust God in this area. Is there division in your heart against God? Are you willing, unwilling to, like the prodigal son, run back to the Father? Are you unwilling to run back, to leave the swine behind and find a feast, a feast prepared purely out of grace for you, someone that didn't earn it and deserve it? Are you willing to run back to the Father? Do you see what we're looking back toward as we come to this table? We are looking back to the death of Christ. His body which was broken for us. His blood which was poured out. A Savior who gave His entire life for those who hated Him. Do you see the death of Christ? Do you see how it levels the ground? Do you see how it calls for an understanding of a grace in your life and in the life of others? And do you see what we're looking toward? Do you see that feast that is being prepared and will be prepared for us as Jesus comes back, steps on this earth, sin is done away with, tears are no more, death is forever swallowed up, suffering is gone, anger is gone, lust is gone. We all are coming together now at this beautiful, eternal barbecue, and Jesus is on the grill, flipping steaks, popping open bottles of aged wine, and it's beautiful, and we're joyful, and we're laughing. That's what we're moving toward. And Jesus is at the center of all of that. And we're all singing as we eat and as we celebrate with Jesus. We're singing a new song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You are worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. This meal is a reminder, and it's a small glimpse in the joy that is to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this drama that you have given us that is communion, the Lord's Supper. All that it memorializes, the body of Christ broken for us, the blood that was poured out, poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, and also what we're looking toward, that great day on the mountain when a feast is prepared for us by the Lord of hosts, a feast of rich food, of aged wine. And God, we look forward to eating together at that feast. Let us each week come together around this table, united, arm in arm, people of different backgrounds, different jobs, different lives, united in the death of of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name and for His sake that we pray. Amen.